If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. Because we intend to fire our people up so much until if they can't have their equal share in the house, they'll burn it down. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice. Welcome back to this History Extra podcast series, where we're charting some of the key moments in the transformative history of the US civil rights movement, the fight for equality that dominated mid-20th century America, with a legacy that continues to shape the world around us today. I'm Rhiannon Davis, section editor for BBC History magazine, and in this six-part series, I'm speaking to leading historians to explore some of the crucial moments that defined this struggle for racial equality. In each episode, our experts will recount one significant story from the movement and consider its place in the wider fight for civil rights. In this final episode of our series, we're leaving the 1960s and 70s behind. We'll be bringing things right up to date, interrogating the legacy of the US civil rights movement, both in America and beyond, and exploring whether the activist dreams of the mid-20th century actually came true. At the start of the series, we heard from Adrienne Lentz-Smith, an associate professor of history at Duke University, an expert on the US civil rights movement, and the historical advisor of this series. I invited her back to speak to me again for this concluding episode. To begin, Adrienne told me a story from the 21st century that I'm sure will be familiar to many listeners. The moment when the Black Lives Matter protests engulfed America and the world in the summer of 2020. 
Americans took to the streets in protests. Protests that hit 200 cities, more, some say, involving people of all ages, people of all races. You know, Black folks in news coverage, in shorthand, And in actuality, we're often at the fore, right? We're highly visible, we're highly vocal. But the protests that swept America in from June to September were never simply or solely Black people protesting on their own behalf. They were Black people protesting in defense of their own humanity and in defense of the humanity of others. The incident that sparked this we often shorthand that's those summer of protests as the George Floyd protests, and there's a reason for that. In May of 2020, close to the end of the month, two months into COVID spring, when we'd all learned to sit and kind of watch the world go by on TV screens, be it Zoom or literal, you know, the literal local news, we all bore witness to the murder of a Black man on the streets of Minneapolis by a police officer, Derek Chauvin, who pushed him to the ground, got on his neck, and stayed there for nine minutes. As the man begged for his life, as George Floyd begged for his life, as bystanders around him begged for his life. A woman caught it on video. She recorded literally nine minutes of a man dying. And we all could see it. It circulated over the internet. It was one of the most devastating things I have ever seen. But it also wasn't the only thing that happened that summer, right? So the murder of George Floyd moved folks into the streets They were there for George Floyd. They were there for themselves, but they were also there for Breonna Taylor. They were there for Ahmaud Arbery, who was jogging through a Brunswick, Georgia town when self-styled vigilantes shot him because they thought that he was burgling someone, as if theft should carry a death sentence enacted by random men on the street. They were there for any number of other cases. This is the horrible thing about America in the first two decades of the 21st century, that there have been so many people killed in police-related killings that were hard-pressed to remember the names of them all. For many, Trayvon Martin was the sort of like founding memory, his murder several years before. For others, it was Rodney King in 1991. But they were there because there was a pattern of police violence that spoke to a problem that was not individual, that was systemic, that they'd been calling for change for for decades, and yet the problem seemed to be getting worse, not better. The folks in the streets were, I mean, in some ways, it reminds me of a sort of Black church service where things can be sorrowful and joyful at the same time. The sort of community, the solidarity, the sense that we all see it and we're not alone and we are raising our voices in protest was inspiring and moved many people 
So you get something that you see in in kind of earlier civil rights protests too, which is people asking for change, an intense state militarized or at least violent state response, and then a debate that becomes about legitimate versus illegitimate forms of protest that in many ways detract from the very thing that people are asking for in the first place. The George Floyd protest and the sort of and the and the racial reckoning as people like to call it of 2020 were interesting because as much as there was pain of what hadn't changed, there were also some things that did change. The amount of voices, the kind of like corporate expression of sympathy and solidarity the broad reach of athletes, you know, Black athletes, but then beyond that, the leagues that they worked for, the NBA or even, you know, the NHL or NASCAR, who were willing to pause and say that we we do care about this sort of urgent question of Black life was really something. The willingness to entertain changes on a legislative level also came into play. But how much of that reckoning will remain With this recent episode in mind, let's dive into the legacy of the civil rights movement. In some respects, it seems to have had a positive legacy. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed The movement had successes, and those successes matter. Historians always talk about change and continuity. I am deeply mistrustful of people who say that nothing has changed. Things change all the time. The civil rights movement gave us protections in law that activists made meaning of on the ground. The passage of the Civil Rights Act is key. The passage of the Voting Rights Act is key. It is the case that the Voting Rights Act has been weakened in the past decade, but that doesn't mean it hasn't done core foundational work 
in the time that we we had it doing things. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't stand for us to get back to and sort of reinvigorate with its own power. The return of Black people to public life so that Black politicians across the board are not unimaginable is important. It's not enough. Showing people in places is not the same thing as changing folks' everyday lives, but having folks in place to do the very basic work. We talk a lot about structural racism, and structural racism is intense and destructive. But if we have folks placed within the structure so that they can begin tweaking it both from the inside out and then folks challenging from the outside in, right? Like, that's how you get change that lasts. African Americans are far better positioned to fix a still broken democracy than they were a century ago, than they were in the 1930s or the 1940s. And I know most people don't think on, like, long timelines like that, right? That's a historian's timeline. But those timelines matter, right? Like, work is slow and gradual, but meaningful. But some aspects of the movement's legacy have been less impactful. Well, work is slow and gradual. (laughs) And it can always be undone. So the civil rights movement did something, as I said. The legislative victories matter. The ability for some African Americans to access mobility matters, economic and otherwise. But those possibilities, those kind of openings can always narrow. Just because a law is passed 50 years ago doesn't mean it remains the same. You see the work either not done or being rolled back or around issues like voting rights. Right When the Supreme Court ruled on Shelby versus Holder in 2013, the pre-clearance section of the Voting Rights Act, the thing that said states with a history of discrimination have to clear their new laws around voting with the Department of Justice. In 2013, the Supreme Court said, you can't just use the same formula for that that we've been using because you're punishing states for history. That is a very problematic understanding of the ways in which the history pertains to the present. The gutting of the Voting Rights Act meant that all kinds of states could go forward with plans that were designed to suppress the vote. Colorblind in language, but not in intent, that were really borrowing from the playbook of the 1890s and of the Jim Crow era, just without using the same firebrand language for doing so. We've seen with the emergence and intensification and emergency of mass incarceration, a new way of dehumanizing, you know, Broad populations, again, but given the disproportionate effect on Black women and men and families, the consequences of a language of Black criminality, that language has been around at least since the origins of Jim Crow, even before, that has taken on renewed life and political currency over the decades, and that have allowed for a deep unfeeling for folks dehumanized and caged 
and allowed many people to not see a crisis where there is a crisis. Civil rights organizing did teach us to do was to like name your problem, see what you need to tackle, and build the community that will help you tackle it, right? So that's where we go. That's where we go next. Before thinking about that idea of where we go next, I want to zoom out for a moment. Although we've been talking of an American civil rights movement throughout the series, as we've noted previously, this tidal wave of activism didn't take place in a vacuum. It's part of a wider global story, and it has a global legacy too. I spoke to Kenetta Perry, Honorary Senior Research Fellow and Founding Director of the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre at De Montfort University, to get a clearer sense of where the civil rights movement fits into a global picture. I think it's really important to see that the U.S. civil rights movement doesn't take place in a vacuum because so many of the activists who we oftentimes pay attention to when we're writing these histories, they were very aware of a global context. Um, Also, when we're thinking about um, some of the the major political players, even if we're thinking about um, government powers and government entities and presidents and political leaders, they are also very much paying attention to what the civil rights struggle means on a global stage. So I really feel like at no phase of understanding this movement's history can we afford to not pay attention to the ways that this movement um, transcended the borders of the U.S. nation. The Cold War context is key. The USSR seized upon the movement as evidence that the liberal democracy America championed had a gaping weakness. Black Americans weren't part of that vision of democracy. Activists are paying attention to the ways in which race and 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 the sort of presentation of race relations becomes a kind of um, fodder. It becomes a way that the Soviet Union can sort of point a finger at um, the U.S. and sort of talk about the ways in which you know. How can you sort of talk about your your form of liberal democracy being something that should be championed in other parts of the world and should have, you know, be part of a sphere of influence in other parts of the world, particularly in um, parts of the colonized world, when the record on, on display in terms of, of what the civil rights movement is, is showing is that the U.S. is not as well regarding their own citizens, their own Black citizens, you know, as members, as active members of, of that vision of democracy and so that becomes a real point of critique, of legitimate critique um, that is happening. And we can think about moments like the sort of move towards the, U- the U.S. government's move towards um, the passage of major civil rights legislation is coming on the heels of wanting to influence that dialogue about sort of their place in the world and wanting to influence that image that the Soviet Union is trying to critique about what American democracy looks and feels like for African-Americans. And so um, I I think that that becomes, again, part of the ways in which the Soviet Union is able to sort of create a contrast between itself and and the United States, particularly at a moment in the post-war period where both of these so-called superpowers are trying to develop larger spheres of influence in parts of the decolonizing world. And so even in terms of that that politics of of decolonization and being able to sort of make a a claim about what sorts of allyships are going to happen with nations 
nations that are evolving uh, as part of, of the decolonizing world and their their relationship to the East or the West. It's, it's some of that dialogue is happening around this conversation about what the American nation stands for in terms of its, its race politics. And both activists on the ground are aware of that as well as those who are in positions of political power. Continuing with that theme of decolonization and the crumbling of the British Empire in this period, let's turn our attention now to the UK. Kaneta told me that the US movement had a powerful impact on Britain in particular. There are a number of ways that we can think about um, the impact of the U.S. civil rights movement on Britain, particularly, again, um, focusing on that period of the 1950s and 1960s. We can really see that, you know, if you look in in the British British media, if you're reading the newspapers on a on a day to day basis, first and foremost, that news is traveling, um, that news is circulating, um, that news is part of of editorial commentary in the London Times and in in the Guardian. So there is an active interest in news of the developments that are happening um, within the civil rights movement in in the U.S. and and these images are circulating around the world. Also, one of the things that's really important about that is that Black activists who are advocating against the second-class citizenship rights of Black people in Britain, many of whom have citizenship rights because of the Commonwealth immigration uh, or or because of the Commonwealth um, nationality law that actually allows subjects of the empire to possess British citizenship upon their arrival in Britain, they're able to make these parallels between questions of second-class citizenship, the ways in which um, you're seeing certain kinds of Jim Crow-like policies that are or affecting the day-to-day lives of individuals who are racialized as Black in the UK context. So even though you don't have necessarily formal, a kind of Jim Crow legislation that is legally mandating a certain kind of segregated society, it's not uncommon in Britain in the 1950s and 1960s to find housing advertisements where you're seeing, you know, no colored people allowed, um, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs is a very sort of common refrain that would have been used um, and encountered by black people navigating British society during that particular period. You would also see, again, a kind of disenfranchisement um, within the employment sector. Um, And so, again, there are a number of parallels that would be important to black people in Britain as they're watching what is playing out in real time in, in the U.S. And that becomes a really crucial way in which Black activists also sort of articulate the struggles of Black Britons during this particular period. Black activists in Britain drew inspiration from the American movement, for instance, forming the British Black Panther movement in 1968. And some of America's leading activists also travelled across the Atlantic to see the movement firsthand in Britain. So I think that is is really important is that, you know, you see a solidarity march on Washington that happens in the UK. You see organizations bringing over iconic civil rights figures like Martin Luther King and like Malcolm X in the early part of the 1960s as part of a way to sort of acknowledge these solidarities, but also um, as part of a, of a kind of way to, to begin organizing on behalf of the rights of Black people in Britain. So in 1964, 
on the way to getting his Nobel Peace Prize, Martin Luther King stops and and has a stop in the U- over in the UK and meets with activists there. And out of that meeting, one of the a major civil rights organization in the UK has formed the Campaign Against Racial Discrimination, and they're going to become really a, a formidable force that's going to shape the possibilities of some of the first anti-racist, anti-discrimination legislation that's going to be happening in Britain in the mid-1960s and with the 1965 um, Race Relations Act. Also, again, activists uh, are part of of networks that are bringing um, Malcolm X over in the early 1960s. And he's going to visit places like Smithwick and walk down streets like Marshall Street, which is a street that became known nationally because of the ways that it was trying to create a dynamic that would exclude people of color from buying properties on that street. And Malcolm X famously talks and compares the ways in which Black and Asian populations in Britain are also suffering in in many of the same ways that those who were disenfranchised under the Third Reich suffered. So the British Black Panther movement really begins in earnest in 1968, but the sort of predecessor to that is organizing that happens in the wake of Stokely Carmichael's visit in 1967. Um, And it's in the aftermath of that movement that you really begin to see different iterations of organizations who are forming in the UK under the banner of a kind of black power politics that's associated with um, Stokely Carmichael's um, visit and being inspired by that. Although this movement was inspired by America, the British variation differed in key ways. An example of how the movement and its legacy was refracted as its ripples spread around the globe. Some of the things that become part of the sort of platform or some of the, the sort of political organizing uh, agendas of the organizations can be quite different in part because there are there's a different imperial history at work. So things like opposing immigration bans and opposing the existence of, of bans that are being regarded by Black and Asian populations in the UK as discriminatory, racially discriminatory, and not allowing groups from certain parts of the empire to enter into the UK. I also think one of the other um, significant differences is sort of the ways in which the rhetoric of blackness um, in some ways is much more flexible and is sort of reminiscent of certain kinds of solidarities that are anti-colonial solidarities that bring both people of African descent, but also people of Asian descent into conversation about political struggle. And I do think that's one, one of the things that's really pronounced about the ways in which black power our politics sort of unfolds in the late 1960s and 1970s in the UK and in comparison to the US. Let's bring the story back up to the 21st century and 2020's Black Lives Matter protests, which we began this episode by discussing. They also sent shockwaves around the world, not least in Britain. Our team works in Bristol And on the street outside this studio where I'm recording today is the empty plinth that once held the statue of merchant and slave trader Edward Colston. This statue was pulled down during the Black Lives Matter protests and rolled into the harbour. I think that the the Black Lives Matter protests that oftentimes, again, um, we can 
think about them in uh, the, the 2020 moment and thinking about them in the 21st century as a movement that has oftentimes been inspired by developments in the U.S., but in many ways, the way that we can see how this movement has been picked up and been sort of reacted to by different parts of the world, it's reminding us of of a longer history of the ways in which historically communities around the world have found different kinds of solidarities and that oftentimes the media narrative might be a focus on events and developments that are happening in the U.S., but those things resonate in different parts of the world. And I think particularly in the U.K., you could see the aftermath of George Floyd's murder being a moment as well. That, that really brought to surface the idea that, that these are concerns that are not limited to the U.S. borders, but these are concerns that Black communities in different parts of the world are experiencing. And these are concerns about longer and wider histories of state violence that have been problematic for disenfranchised communities in different parts of the world. And so I think one of the things that's really significant when we're thinking about um, the 21st century and the Black Lives Matter movement, and particularly in the aftermath of, of 20. 2020 is that there is a historical narrative that oftentimes gets overlooked that helps us to see, you know, why these stories resonate, why they they travel around the world, why people find solidarities, why people find themselves linked in many ways to these stories that might happen within the borders of the United States, but certainly are not necessarily narratives that are limited to to the United States. As this series draws to a close... I wonder what Martin Luther King Jr. would make of the world today if he could see it now. Would he think his dreams had been realised? I asked Adrienne for her take on this question. I think that Martin Luther King's vision for what a successful civil rights movement would look like has been neither realised nor understood. People love to go to, I mean, and with good reason, people love to go to the I Have a Dream speech because it is a profound and remarkable piece of American oratory, but they really don't want to deal with the substantive critique of state power, of excessively brutalizing bodies, lives, and possibility Black folks domestically, but sort of in the context of the Vietnam War, beyond. They don't really want to sit with his letter from a Birmingham jail where he excoriates white racial moderates by saying your complacency about a system means that for all of your sympathy, you're still doing damage, right? Like there's there's a far more radical Martin Luther King in King's body of of writings and his speeches than the kind of like America's Black Jesus version that everybody wants to trot around. I think we also spend so much time talking about King or having him sort of stand in for the movement more broadly that we forget how much of the civil rights movement was just about grunt work that wasn't a sort of moving speech by King or Fannie Lou Hamer or whom have you. It was just about people knocking on doors, asking folks, like, if they were hungry, did they want to do something about it? Had they thought about how voting might help? What voting encompassed? And then, like, how they would talk about their own freedom dreams or visions of citizenship. The civil rights movement 
what it is, is a deep engagement with the people around you about what the project of building a better life and an empowered and loving community would be. And then a capacity to make the structures of government help people see that project through. Not only have we not gotten there, but we've sort of attacked the validity of talking about that project in that way, right? I always say that one of the tragic ironies of the mid-century civil rights movement is that just as Black folks returned to, fought their way back into public life, ideologues turned their attack on the very notion of the idea of a public so that the government as the sort of storehouse protector and progenitor of public good would have been a commonsensical statement in the mid-century has somehow become dangerous radicalism in the early 21st. I hope you've enjoyed this series. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the series and the topics we've covered, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at History Extra. Many thanks to my experts for this episode. Adrienne Lent-Smith, Associate Professor of History at Duke University, who specialises in African-American history and 20th century US history, and who is also the historical consultant for this series, and Kenetta Perry, Honorary Senior Research Fellow and Founding Director of the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre at De Montfort University. This episode was written and researched by me, Rhiannon Davis, and it was produced by Brittany Colley. Additional checks were by Daniel Adamson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>